why we're not looking at the entire thing is that there is a lot here that is unique and and it takes some time. We don't have enough time in one sermon to really hit all the unique elements in this text. You probably noticed that as we were reading it earlier, how we, um, with this cutting of animals and this torch and all this strange stuff happening, we just need more time to explain all of that. The other reason why we're not going to look at the entire thing is Moses, our author, uh, he he divides the text into two parts. There are two sections to it. And so it follows that we would look at one of those sections this week and the second one next week. Now, one of the interesting things about the Pentateuch and these patriarchal narratives is that the type divisions between the sections, between the chapters usually, are varied. Sometimes you have a few days or months that elapse between chapters, and sometimes you have years. We don't have the entire story. The events here in chapter 15 are follow very closely the events of chapter 14. In fact, we would assume that it's only been days or weeks since the end of chapter 14 before 15 begins. One of the reasons for this is that the author, Moses, connects them. You notice the very first word that says, in verse 1, he says, after these things. And so he's connecting the things that happened in 14 to the things in 15 here. So what happened in 14? Well, that's where we, that's the, that's the story, right? That's the one where he fights off the mighty king, Kedor Laomer, and he defeats the allied kings of the east, rescues his nephew Lot, uh, pays the tithe to the priest Melchizedek, king of Salem, and rejects the king of Sodom and his riches. Now, chapter 15. With that in mind, chapter 15. Now, I think Moses, the author of the Scripture, is doing more than just setting historical narrative here. I think he's setting also a thematic narrative. We're supposed to be thinking about Moses or Abram's actions as we come to hear of Abram's vision and read about the vision that he has. Particularly, the surprising victory over Kedolaomer. Now, I don't know if you remember the story. I'm not going to tell it again this morning, for time's sake. But if you were to go back and think through or remember or just briefly look back in the text, Abram shouldn't have won that battle. He had 318 fighting men, and a couple of brothers that he allied with, against four of the strongest, mightiest armies in the ancient times. I don't know if Abram thought about that. I sure would have. Wait, did I get lucky? Good thing we took him by surprise. Like, what was he going through his mind? Secondly, his refusal of the king of Sodom I wonder if he was having some second thoughts about that as well. Have you ever made a financial decision and then wondered afterwards whether it was the best decision? How about one where you turned down immediate wealth? I've never had to make that decision. I've never been offered the riches that Abram was offered. I wonder if he was thinking, wait, I could have secured my future. I won those rightfully. But he didn't do that in the moment. And then I'm wondering if the things that were going through his mind as he honored Melchizedek meets this priest of the Most High God and makes a confession, a public confession in 1422. He says, I've raised my hand to the Lord God Most High that I won't take anything from Sodom, but he's made a vow before God. He's raised his hand. He's confessed his dependence on El Elyon, the Most High God. You can imagine there's a lot of things swirling through Abram's heart and mind here at the conclusion of these events. So after these things, the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. Is Abram's trust misplaced? Should he have taken the riches from Sodom? 
Could he have made an alliance? Did he get lucky? Is his trust in Yahweh well placed? That question matters to you and I, doesn't it? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever wondered? Is my trust in Yahweh well placed? Have you ever doubted? Have you ever been concerned and wondered if you've made the right choice, so to speak? Our strange text does not settle these questions. Ultimately, the rest of the Pentateuch will actually do that. Abraham, Abraham, uh, the cycle of Abram in Genesis will settle that question as did, was Abram's trust in the Lord misplaced? And the answer, of course, is no. But it begins to unravel this and unfold this for us. Not so much what Abram is like, but what is the God he is trusting in like? Who is this Most High God? And is he indeed worthy of trust? For us, too, this question is important. And I think we can just kind of give the spoiler alert. Your trust in Yahweh, the Lord God, is not misplaced. It is, in fact, the only hope you have of personal righteousness. And that is what the text will bring out for us. So I said it already, and we read it this morning, but it says that Abram, Lord, came to Abram in a vision. And we need to quickly mention what is a vision. Um, we don't find this idea of vision, or this word used very often in the Pentateuch, in the book of Genesis. We don't find it used that often. We find the Lord appearing to the patriarchs, but the term vision is not used. It's used a lot for the prophets. Remember, like Isaiah... Ezekiel and, and such. Um, what, is, what is a vision? Well, first of all, a vision is, in the biblical sense, it's not a dream. It's not like these things weren't happening. Like Abram wakes up and he and, and he wonders what what just happened. What did I did that really happen or not? That's not the idea of a vision in the biblical sense. The idea of a vision in the biblical sense is is that it is a word, an audible, perhaps even visible appearance of God where the individual is very well aware of what's happening, but what distinguishes a vision from merely the word of the Lord or an oracle coming is the vision often includes sometimes strange but unique illustrations. You think of Isaiah's vision when he saw the seraphim gathered around the throne, or Daniel's vision when he saw these beasts, or John's vision of heaven, the hereafter, and the book of Revelation. So a vision would be different from simply like the word of the Lord came to him, because the vision includes some sort of visible demonstration. And that's what we see here, right? He gets an illustration with the stars, and then he also has an illustration with some animals and some sacrifices, and he's participating in the whole thing. He's a part of it. So it's not like Abram isn't aware of what's happening. So the vision here is not some sort of dream that he's taking place, that's taking place. So what is happening in this vision? Well, there's two parts to it, as I already said. One through six is the first part, and seven through twenty-one is the second part. In the first part of the vision, God, first of all, will declare himself trustworthy. And then he'll repeat his promise to Abram of seed, you having a seed that will come. And then finally... He will assure Abraham that he will indeed keep his covenant. You can count on the word of God. Second half of the vision, he does very similar things in 7 through 21. First, he will repeat his promise, but this time instead of a seed, repeat the promise of land to Abram. And then he will explain the reason for the delay, why it's not right now for Abram. And finally, he will ratify or assure his promises through a covenant with this really strange blood ritual. And that's what we're going to look at next week, is this really strange blood ritual that he does. 
But we're only looking at verses 1 through 6 today. This is, our, this is the heart of the text. If we want to begin with understanding God's first speech as he comes to Abram in this vision and declares himself to be trustworthy. And notice how he does that. He says, Fear not, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now, it's kind of interesting that he begins this with, do not be afraid. So far in our text, Abram hasn't struck me as the fearful type. Well, I mean, he was back in Egypt. But he seems to be a new man, right? After all, he grabbed 318 of his boys and took after the mighty king Tetelahomer, right? So why does the Lord come and say, do not be afraid? Well, it could be that, as one author I read suggested, after battle, sometimes that's when fear really begins. Because your adrenaline's gone, you're now settled down, you're thinking, oh man, what did I just do? I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason why God tells Abram, do not be afraid, is because when we ever see these visions of God throughout the Scripture, they're always accompanied with men falling on their faces in fear and trembling before Yahweh. Whether it's Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, you see men fall down in fear when God appears to them. And not even a physical appearance of God. Some sort of glorious appearance, yes. But not even the full orb of God's glory. And men fall down as dead men before Him. Now this is an interesting juxtaposition. Because you have Abram unafraid of four kings with mighty armies. And yet the Lord, who is his friend, needing to tell him, don't be afraid. The only thing I wish to further express about that is I think this is something we have lost. Don't think we really consider that it is indeed, for humanity, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Even when He's your friend, He is still the mighty God. Over Thanksgiving holiday, kids and I watched some different movies, and one of the movies we watched again that we enjoyed watching, read the books, is C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I'll never get over the portrayal that Lewis does in that of the Christ figure, Aslan the Lion. And Lucy's question when she wants to meet the lion, and she's, she said she'd be terrified to meet a lion, and you don't need to be terrified. She said, oh, so he's, so he's a tame lion. And I know this is weird if you never read the stories, but the beaver says, oh, who said anything about being tame? The idea that God can be both friend and yet lion. That's the uh, concept here. Don't be afraid, though. He follows that up with two more lines. For I am your shield and your great reward, your exceedingly great reward. There's a question in translation as to whether or not this should be, I am your shield and your reward will be great, or if it's God saying, I am your shield and I am your reward. The literal reading, the most literal, the least interpretive is the one that just simply says, I am your shield, I am your reward. And yes, I think that includes your reward will be great, but the concept here is God is describing Two things for Abram to remind him. And this is the context of this battle with Tedala Armor. I am your protection and I am your provision. Whatever you need, I am that for you, is what he's telling Abram. 
I went before you. That's what the word shield means. Kind of a weird word to use here, you would think, when we're not talking in a battle context. But shield not only means the idea of just a, like a, a metal defense, but it's actually a reference used, this word in the Hebrew is used as a reference to the one in front. The one who goes before. The one who plows the way, essentially. And allows others to go through. I am your one in front. I am plowing the way, Abram. You didn't defeat Hedor Laomer. I did. I plowed the way. And you don't need Sodom's riches because I am your wages. I am your reward. I will provide for you. I will protect you. This is a fantastic promise, isn't it? It's a fantastic expression that comes in this vision. But Abram has an interesting reaction. That's all well and good. Thank you. But, but there's something missing. We said there. And Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. What will you give me? Wait, I just said I'm your shield and your reward. And then he says, what will you give me? Seeing I go, and that literally is, I go to my grave. I'm getting old. I go childless. And the heir of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Look, you've given me no offspring. Anyone born of my house is my heir. But I have no heir. Now the question must be asked, Is Abram being a little ungrateful? God just said, I mean, he just got the victory of, with the king. And then God says, I am your reward. I am your wages, which is what that word means. And I'm your shield. Don't be afraid of me. You don't have to fear me. And he says, yeah, but I don't have an heir. Is he being ungrateful? Is he being a little bit like, well, you should be thankful for what you have, Abram. God has done, you, done great things for you. And I think the simple answer to that is no, Abram is not at all being ungrateful here. Because what he is referencing is the promise of God to him. It is not ingratitude for God's people to hold tightly to God's promises while they're waiting for them to come through. It is not ingratitude. We see this all through the Psalms, right? The psalmist will cry out and complain to God, but on the basis of God's promises. God had promised Abram that he would bring him an heir. An heir would come to him. And Abram says, what is all the wages and the provisions in the world if I don't get your promise? What is it all if you're unfaithful to me, God? I don't think Abram is accusing God of unfaithfulness. But I think that Abram is expressing his own heart and his dependence in the promise of God. I actually believe that Abram is expressing faith in this text. He's saying, you haven't given me what you promised. The heir. Abram certainly believed God would protect him, provide for him, but this other thing is bothering him. Now, one of the reasons, two, two of the reasons why I believe that Abram's question is not a mark of unbelief, but of faith itself, is, is in the question, in, in his response. Notice how he addresses God, first of all. Abram said, Lord God. Now, that may just seem like a, to us as we read it, may just seem like a common way of describing God, but actually those two words together in the Hebrew, Adonai Elohim, they're not actually used together in the old, in the Pentateuch, except in this text. They're used in other places, but it's a very specific way of, a, of addressing God. And it really could be understood this way. Sovereign God. 
So Abram is not, when he's asking about the heir, he's not accusing God. He's addressing God as the sovereign one. You're the sovereign one. And you promised the heir. His belief is that God is sovereign even over the situation. The second aspect there is he acknowledges that it is God who must act. You have not given me an heir. What will you give me? You, you hear in the, in the words of Abram there, his trust that the sovereign God must act or Abram will receive nothing. That's what he's expressing. His trust in the sovereignty of God. His dependence on the action of God. I will have no heir unless you act. He's not asking God, tell me what I must do, and I'll do it. He's expressing to God his own character, God's own character. You, the sovereign one, act on my behalf. And once again, I just encourage you, beloved, it is not, it is not influence for you to cry out to God, the sovereign one, and beg Him to act on your behalf. He delights in that. He's pleased with His saints praying, calling in the Sovereign One. Act for me. Keep your word, God. Fulfill your promises. That's a prayer of faith. So, what is God's then response to Abram? Verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one, that's Eleazar, shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. I will fulfill my promise. I said, I am your shield and your reward. I will keep my word. You can trust me. I'll keep my word. Abram was right to ask about his heir, but wrong to assume that Eleazar is that heir. Who is this Eleazar? Household servant, come from Damascus, part of the family, but is not a son. So what does he do? God takes Abram outside. He wants to give him an illustration, an object lesson, to encourage him to hold to the word of the Lord. As we says, look out at the stars. Look at all of them. Count them if you are able. So shall your seed be. Now to understand this um, illustration, we have to look at the text carefully. Because this is not a mathematical solution to Abram's problem. In other words, this is not God saying there will be as many children, Abram, you'll have as many descendants, as many heirs, as there are mathematically as many stars in the sky. That's not what the text says. Um, and that's why I think some people who have misread this, and we'll explain why, why I say that in a minute, just look closely at it, why some have misread this, and they said, well, what do you do when the fact that there's like 200 billion trillion stars and there's not even that many people have ever lived on the face of the earth? Well, he's not saying that there's going to be, that's an estimation on the stars, but scientists, who knows how many are out there. Um, he's not saying that. Look at what he says in the text. He says, look to the stars, count them. If you are able to number them, that's what your descendants will be. So he's saying, if you're able, using that idea of, you can't. You can't number them. Like I said, scientists today estimate there's 200 billion trillion stars. I don't even know what that number means. Uh, and they say, well, we don't know. That's just an estimation based on this. Based on, you can't. The whole idea is you can't number them. Even you can't. He can start and he lose track. He can't do it. 
And God is saying, you won't be able to number the descendants. The seed will be like that, innumerable to you. Of course, of course, not innumerable to God. He knows every hair on the heads of every one of those people that a star represents. But from our perspective, the whole point of this illustration is it's an innumerable amount. It's an impossibility. It's something that you can't count or regard or fathom is what he's telling Abram. But I will give it to you. So will your descendants. So Abram gets this nightly reminder of God's promise. That every night when the sun goes down and the Bedouin steps outside of his tent, which it must have been quite impressive without all this light pollution, and he steps outside his tent and he looks up there and he remembers the promise of God. He's healed. He's his reward. He'll fulfill his word. Every night, keep his word. And he gives him this reminder. So God indeed assures Abram that he will indeed keep all of his promises. Your trust is not misplaced. Verse 6 is next movement in our text. And it's actually a little bit of an interruption. Same at first, and he Abram believed in the Lord, and he, that God, accounted it to him for righteousness. It's a little out of place. <clears throat> Let me explain what I mean by that. Is this the first time Abram believed in the Lord? Oh, no. He certainly believed when he was brought out of Ur of Chaldees, right? How about with the matter of tithing and his trust and the most high God with the matter of Melchizedek and the battle of the kings and he believed the promises. They've already been given to him two times. He's believed them. He's surveyed the land. He's made his tent in Mamre and pitched his tent in Mamre. He's believed the Lord. So this isn't the initiation of Abram's faith. This is not the first time he believes. Kenneth Matthews, I think, explains the sudden presence of this verse in the text. Well, he says, the author, Moses, is editorializing on the events reported, not including Abram's faith in the chain of events as a consequence of the theophonic message. In other words, Moses is giving us a little insight to describe Abram's character. So he believes. Yes, he believes here. By the way, the New Testament authors agree in the book of James, James uses this verse, but uses it um, and applies it uh, in Genesis 22 with the sacrifice of Isaac. And so they recognize that it's not just this is not the only time that Abram believes God. That this idea of him believing the word of the Lord, believing in the Lord, this is characteristic of Abram. And here's an instance where, where we see it. This is who he is. He is one who believes in the Lord. I want to walk through this verse because it's so significant and so important. Used in the New Testament by Paul the Apostle and James. The foundation of salvation, the gospel message as declared by the Apostle Paul is this verse, this commentary on Abram's faith. And I want to simply point out three aspects before we're done today. One, the nature of Abram's righteousness. Two, the means of Abram's righteousness. And three, the object of Abram's righteousness. From this verse. First, the nature of Abram's righteousness. What do we, we say that he was, it was accredited to him as righteousness or for righteousness? He believed and he was righteous. What does that mean? Sedek is the normal Hebrew word for righteousness. It's used here. You might recognize that word, even if you're not a Hebrew speaker. 
because we just learned about this guy named Melchizedek. Um, Melech, King Tzedek, righteousness, King of righteousness. So Tzedek, righteousness, is the word here. This Hebrew word, it means um, to be righteous, to do righteous things, to do justice, to act justly, uh, to act fairly. It, it has all sorts of meaning to it. It's not just a, a one idea. It's a very fluid concept in the Hebrew language. To my best of my understanding, this is only the third time that the word Tzedek, without attached to a name like Melchizedek, only the third time it appears in Genesis to this point. The other two times were when we learned about a guy named Noah who was described as righteous. And now Abram is described as righteous. But is this a description of Abram's lifestyle? Is this a, is this a thing? Well, he was a good man. He was a righteous man. Is this describing his activity? And the answer is no. Though I'm not denying his activity as righteous, I'm saying that's not what Moses is editorializing here. He's not commenting on Abram being a good man, a just man. How do we know that? Because of the rest of the context of what he's saying. He uses other words. He says that he has righteousness, Abram is righteous, because faith was credited or accounted to him as righteousness. He attaches that word, accounted, hashab, to think, to regard, because he's regarded as righteous. Now, let's be fair. To be righteous and to be regarded as righteous are not necessarily the same thing, are they? For example, I could regard you as righteous, but you could totally have fooled me. And you're not really, but I regard you as such. So to say someone is righteous, and to say someone is regarded, has stopped, regarded as righteous, is not the same thing. Considered righteous is not the same thing as actually righteous, right? The Septuagint translates that word credited or counted, or gives them us. Put to the account of, or imputed. Put on the account. So essentially what's happening here is we're seeing that the righteousness that is being described by God of Abram here is not necessarily his activity of righteousness, but a righteousness that's imputed to him. That there has been a righteousness put on his account that he has been credited with righteousness, regarded as righteousness, as righteous. And the text, it says that the Lord, he accounted it to him as righteousness. In other words, God regards Abram as righteous. God imputes Righteousness onto Abram's account. You have a New Testament word for that. Used by Paul the Apostle all over the place, but Romans especially. That New Testament word is the word justification. Justification does not mean that one is necessarily actually righteous but it means that one is declared or regarded as righteous by God. Now, that's very important theologically. It was actually a foundational element of the Reformation, understanding this concept. That it is God who declares sinners to be righteous. He regards them as righteous, even if their actions are not. God counted Abram as righteous. God justified 
Abram. Now, there's more to talk about. I'm going to get to it in a moment, but just let that sink in for just a moment. If God imputed righteousness to Abram, thereby justifying him, then the doctrine of justification is not a reformation doctrine. It is not a Pauline doctrine. It is a Mosaic doctrine. Right? It goes all the way back to the Father of faith. That would imply that the concept of justification by grace alone and we're going to see in a moment through faith alone, that that has always been the doctrine of salvation. You go back to Genesis 15 and see that this was how God justified the guy from Ur of Chaldea. God justified Abram. Okay, we'll pause this. We'll hit that later. How? What is the means of this justification? How did God justify Abram? So simple. Abram believed in the Lord. Faith. That's it. Faith alone. Abram believed. Not good works. Did Abram do good works? Absolutely. It was a pretty good work to go rescue his nephew. It was a really good thing to turn down the glittering riches of Sodom. He tithed to Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God. And yet not one of those things is mentioned when it describes his justification. Not one work is mentioned by Abram. Hear the Apostle Paul in Romans 4. What shall we say that Abram, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. He simply says this, Paul the Apostle, and using this text, if Abram worked for God's righteousness, then God would have been indebted to Abram and no God at all. An indebted God is not God. But since the justification was a gift by means of faith, Abram has nothing to boast in. He has no way to say, I did it. Paul will go on Romans and say, listen, work is work and grace is grace. Stop confusing categories. If it's a gift, it's a gift. If it's a job, it's a job. <laughs> the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, brings the point home. He says, If Abram, when full of good works, is not justified by them, but by his faith, how much more we, being full of imperfections, must come into the throne of the heavenly grace and ask that we may be justified by faith, which is in Christ Jesus, and saved by the free mercy of God. He had a way with words, and I like the way he says that if Abraham, full of faith, full of good works, was not justified by them, how about us who are not full of good works? So it wasn't good works, faith alone. But not just good works. This is important, too, because the central argument in the book of Romans, not religious ritual, not really of any sort. Paul speaks of this in detail in Romans chapter 9 because he says, listen, listen, when was Abraham justified? Well, he was justified, according to this text, by faith. And then Abraham, then, then Paul asks this very significant question. He says, 
So, was this the pre-circumcised or post-circumcised Abraham? And they say, well, yeah, it was pre-circumcised. Oh, so what you're telling me is that circumcision doesn't matter. Because if Abraham could be justified without the religious ritual of circumcision, which to the Jew was the ritual of rituals, then what religious ritual could possibly contribute to one's righteousness? No, it's not the circumcision, not the baptism. It's not the temple works. It's not being a good sermon listener. Whatever religious ritual, whatever good work, Paul the Apostle himself says, really, those things are righteousness. Faith alone justified Abraham. Wait, is faith a work? And if, if, if you have to do something, right? Believe, so is faith a work? If someone has to do something to believe? The simple answer is this. No. Faith is no more work than sitting is running, that silence is talking, that rest is action. Faith is not the exertion of our efforts. It's the cessation from them. We must not confuse faith and faithfulness. We must not confuse trust and obedience. Yes, the Apostle Paul will actually use Genesis 15, 6, coupled, Apostle James, sorry, will use Genesis 15, 6, coupled with Genesis 22 to describe that true faith produces faithfulness and trust produces obedience, but they're not the same thing. And this is a struggle today. It's a concern. I see it all around us in Christianity. This confusion that somehow we are justified by our faithfulness. Or at least we retain it. At least we get our final justification by our faithfulness. And the answer is no. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But what if he wasn't... What if Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith alone. Some might argue my faith is too weak, too small. But Abraham's faith is quite imperfect as well. Because it's not the power of faith that justifies. It's the presence of faith that brings the power of Christ in justification. But how is this possible? So we saw the manner, the nature of Abram's righteousness, and that was justification. He's talking about justification here. Two, the means, faith alone. But what's the object? Abram believed in the Lord. Now, what does this mean that he believed in the Lord? I, I have this convoluted, I was working through this in a convoluted way, and I realized that I probably just made it too complex in my notes. Well, it was just too complex in my head. And so I'm just going to try to simplify this. What does it mean that Abram believed in the Lord? What's in the context there? The context is the promise of God. To believe in the Lord is to believe in the promise of God. Twice in this text, it says the word of the Lord came to Abram. And did you know that's the only time that phrase is used in all of Genesis? The word of the Lord came. Twice it's emphasized the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came. And what is emphasized? The promise. The promise. What specific promise? The promise of heir. Right? Now this is significant. You notice in the text it says, in verse 5 he says, So shall your descendants be. It's unfortunate that modern translations, I think, miss the boat on this. Something I think that Paul the Apostle emphasizes in Galatians. That when it says, so shall your descendants be, that's actually incorrect in the translation because the word Sarah, there, or seed, is singular. So shall your seed be. 
But then the, the reason why translations, I think, add offspring or descendants, I, I understand it. It's trying to make sense of, well, you just said there are going to be as many as the stars. How can it be singular? And this is where I got a little bit complex, I think, and a little over my head. Well, think of this, and then you can work it out on your own. In the singular seed, there is an innumerable host. Because as Paul points out in Galatians, he, he makes this big, he makes a big deal about the singular word in Galatians chapter three, in the singular seed. In, in Galatians three, which when I have time to get to, he says he doesn't say seed, he says seed. Why? Because there's one heir. There's one heir of Abram, and it wasn't Isaac. There's one seed. And in that one seed, in that one heir, there's an innumerable fellow heirs. Sharers in everything this one heir, this one seed possesses. And Paul makes the argument in Galatians chapter 3 from the same text that he's speaking of Christ. That in this text he's speaking of Christ. He's not saying that, oh, Abram, don't worry, you're going to have lots of kids. He's telling Abram, you're going to have the one. You're going to have the one most important kid of all. That won't be Isaac. It won't be Jacob. It will be Christ Jesus, the seed. And in Him, all nations of the earth will be blessed. I do want to point this out in Galatians, because I think it, it brings this, this home. Look over in Galatians chapter 3. Notice in Galatians 3. Verse 15, it says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of man, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, 3.15 here, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abram and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seed as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 400 and 30 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God, before by God in Christ is to make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance of the law it is no longer a promise that God gave it to Abraham by promise. You see what, it, what he's saying there? Listen, Christ is the heir. He's the seed. He's the promise. He's what Abraham was looking for. What do we mean by that? mean that what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 8. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all nations shall be blessed. He said we could kind of go on this, but I'm out of time. This is the summation of what Paul is saying there. That this is the gospel. That Abraham would preach the gospel. When God said, Your seed, and you all nations will be blessed through your seed, he was telling him the gospel. That's what the text says. In other words, what is the object? of Abram's faith? What is the source of Abram's faith? It is Christ. It is the Gospel. It is the seed. Abraham believes the Gospel. He believes the Lord, the promise, and is credited, imputed to him for righteousness. He's justified. The nature of Abram's justification, our innate faith, the righteousness, is he is justified. The means by faith alone. And the object, the power, the source, Christ alone. The gospel. Abram heard the gospel preached beforehand in the promise of the seed that would bless all nations. So briefly, 
two simple profound facts follow. First of all, what is true for the Father is true for the children. If Abraham was justified through faith alone and not by any work of righteousness, then any and all who desire righteousness must come the way of Abraham. They must come to the Gospel, through the Gospel, through faith alone. It's the only way. As Paul says in Romans 4.12, we must follow in the steps of Father Abraham. And secondly, the promise is to all who believe the Gospel. One of the primary points of Romans 4, Galatians 3, Paul's application of the text is that it's not just for the Jews, but for Gentiles, for all. All who believe the word of promise, all who believe the gospel, will have faith credited as righteous.